Good afternoon, and welcome everyone to the Chess Journal Club webinar. I'm here with my co-moderator, Bjorn Kahl, and we're here to talk about a fantastic study called Return to Work After, After Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. We have with, her, with us both the authors of the paper, Dr. Su, um, who is initially trained in Taiwan as a nurse, obtained her PhD at the University of Washington, and is now a post fellow at Northwestern University studying return to work issues. This is one of her multiple papers that she's actually been focused and published. We have with us also Dr. Needham, who is a practicing critical care physician at Johns Hopkins. He's a professor in pulmonary critical care and in physical medicine and rehabilitation. And we have with us our content liaison, Dr. Dangayach, who is the director of critical care recovery program at Mount Sinai. Thank you everyone and for joining us and welcome. So we're gonna just basically kick it off by asking Dr. Sue her thoughts for what was the actual impetus for this study and what was the goal of this study for her? So the study, so, so the idea began from two simple questions when I work as a registered nurse in the ICU. So the first question is if I were a survivor of critical illness, what kind of life I would want to live? And uh, another question is what can I do to make that kind of life happen as a healthcare provider? So basically on those two questions, so the goal for this study is to identify potential modifiable risk factor associated with delayed return to work, as well as inform intervention to evaluate in future studies. So it was actual experience as a nurse that you were able to witness patients who were having a difficult time with returning that helped prompt some of this. Yes. That's amazing. Um, what, what would, can you tell us a little bit about the methodology of the study? Because that, that I thought was actually very interesting and I'm sure it was very time consuming. Yeah, sure. So, so this study is a secondary data analysis from the ARDS Network Long-Term Outcome Study. And the parent study evaluates six and 12 months outcome from ARDS survivor from four randomized trials conducted by the National Institute of Health Health funded ARDS network. So the participants in the parent study were enrolled from 43 US hospitals from 2008 to 2014. But for this specific study, previous employee participants in the ARDS network trial were excluded from this analysis if they are died or retired during the follow-up period. And if their pre-ARDS job was classified as having both low physical and the low psychosocial workload because the sample size for this group is very small. So it's too small to make any meaningful statistic analysis. And the, for this analysis, we end up with 362 participants. So the outcome of the outcome of interest for this paper is whether the participant returned to work at six and 12 months follow up. So in the parent study, a previously development employment questionnaire were, was used. This in-depth questionnaire, including participants' pre-ARDS job, along with their pre and the current employment status. 
So the variable of interest for this paper is patients' pre-ARDS workload and the post-ARDS functional ability. So we define the pre-ARDS workload as the minimal cognitive, physical, and the psychosocial and the interpersonal ability required to perform a specific job. So for this variable, we match participants' pre-ARDS job title with the ONET system. So the ONET system is the U.S. Department of Labor database. And the last system with data for nearly 1,000 different occupations. So workload is best is separated into different domain. And then we combine that into two categories. So the first category is psychosocial workload, which including cognitive, emotional, and the interpersonal workload. Another one is physical workload, which focus on performing physical activity. And then after that, we define three pre-ARDS workload phenotype based on the ARDS network long-term outcome study data. So the three different workload phenotype, the first one is high psychosocial, uh, is a job only require high psychosocial workload. And the, the second one is the job require high psychosocial workload and the low, uh, sorry, the second one is the job require high physical workload and the low psychosocial workload. Mm -hmm. And the, the third one is the job require high physical and the high psychosocial workload. And another variable of interest is post-ARDS functional impairments. So we evaluate this very uh, we evaluate the impairment at six and the 12 months post-ARDS. So they are so psychosocial impairment was measured based on the minimal mental status examination and the mental health and the social functioning subscale of the show from 36. And the physical impairment was measured based on the physical function subscale of the SF36. And in using the SF36 impairment was defined as a normalized scale less than or equal to 40. And using those variable, we define we define post-ARDS functional impairment phenotype based on the observed return to work pattern. So we end up with four different phenotypes. So the first one is the patient with no functional impairment. The second one is the patient with only psychosocial impairment. The third one is the patient with physical impairment and the low psychosocial impairment. The last one is the individual with physical impairment and high psychosocial impairment. So in addition to low this impairment, we also separately evaluate pain and the fatigue symptom used as F36 and the functional assessment of chronic illness therapy survey fatigue scale respectively. That's fantastic. And like I said, I'm sure that this actually was um, something that took a large amount of time to be able to delineate which actual specific ways you're going to evaluate all the different aspects and to give it in such a detailed format, I thought was amazing. Um, I also enjoyed in the study how you actually give examples of certain job types that would fall within each of those phenotypes. That actually, I think, gave a good reference point to people who are reading the study along. So 
Um, we're going to kind of get to the, the meat of the study, um, unless um, Viren and Dr. Dangach has anything specific um, to question or ask. And Dr. Needham, of course, please feel free to, to um, comment at any point. But really, what did you end up finding then from this study? Yes, so we find that jobless at six and the 12 months occur in almost one of two previous employment survivors. So it's pretty common. And then the significant risk factor at six and the 12 months for each of these are psychosocial impairment alone or individual with psychosocial impairment and the physical impairment, or they have pain symptom or fatigue symptom. So those are the four main risk factors we find. And we find that the pre-RDS workload is not associated with whether patient can return to work or not. So to clarify, um, Dr. Sue, we, so when we look at the pre-ARDS workload, what mm -hmm. you did before you got ARDS, yes. that was not related necessarily to functional impairment afterwards. Yes. On the other hand, if you did have functional impairments, specifically either at you know, physical impairment and or psychosocial impairment, then you had difficulty returning to work. Is that a fair summary of findings? Yes. Okay. So, and, and, and as well as the pain and the or fatigue symptoms. Pain and fatigue symptoms. So, was there a difference between the three major impairment groups, which is basically only psychosocial impairment, physical and low low psychosocial impairment, and third being physical and high psychosocial impairment? Between the three groups, was there a difference in which group was more likely to return to work? So basic on our, so you can see the table basic on our result. Uh, the person with, compared to patient with no impairment, only psychosocial impairment, the person with only psychosocial impairment has the higher odds chance to return to work. So Dr. Needham, if I may pull you in, how, how would you interpret this, right? So for me, this was stark that, you know, we normally think about critical illness and we think about the muscular weakness, the neuromuscular components and critical care, myopathy, neuropathy, so on and so forth. And we think, okay, you're weak from your illness, hence you couldn't return to work. But what your study is finding is, is the, I suppose, neurocognitive element, which is most likely to impair you is what that, and, and what do you make of that? Sure, so importantly, these are impairments at six months or at 12 months. So we know that, that the concept of post-intensive care syndrome, that it's not unexpected that patients have physical, cognitive, and or mental health impairments at six months, 12 months, and even beyond. Uh, but Dr. Sue's sort of unique contribution was to look at these impairments in a, in a multifaceted way and understand their associations with, with uh, return to work. And I think as this slide shows, 
you know, if we think about these odds ratios, these reflect these odds ratios are, are relatively low, meaning they're far away. They're much smaller than 1.0, you know, down to, to 0.3, 0.15. So what that shows is that there's very powerful, very strong associations that you're much less likely to return to work if you have these impairments. And in fact, interestingly, if, if survivors had psychosocial impairments alone, that, that had a significant association, or if they had psychosocial impairments along with physical impairments, um, that, that was associated. And then, you know, Dr. Sue said, let's think about pain, let's think about fatigue, because those don't necessarily fall so nicely into psychosocial or physical impairments, because they often are multifaceted phenomenon, right? People that have fatigue symptoms likely have aspects of both psychosocial and physical problems, but each of these were associated with, um, uh, with reduced return to work. So really there's lots and lots of important impairments that are happening and, and they do help us understand those people who will not return to work. Um, does that help? Absolutely. And then, so pivoting from that, um, Dr. Dangyach, real quick for you. So as a neurointensivist, I think uh, this phenomenon is pretty obviously, I would say more stark with some of our um, neurocritical care patients. So how does this inform your practice now that, you know, this is not just neurocritical care, you're also talking about, you know, clearly post-ARDS and the COVID-19 pandemic going on. Does this inform your practice? What do we take off of it? Um, what do you see in the future from these findings? So first and foremost, congratulations to, to Dr. Sue and Dr. Needham for, for designing a study that helps us understand also the association between who this person was before they became a patient. So that pre-morbid um, the, the impact of what what their occupation was and what kind of uh, what kind of workload, whether it was more psychosocial, whether it was more physical, does that in any way that kind of reserve that you build with the job that you're doing, does that in any way impact your ability to bounce back from ARDS and fix and then get back? To work. So I think the study was designed very, very, very well in trying to understand that pre-morbid impact. So that's one piece. And the, the second piece that, um, that is very important to understand in my mind about the PICS literature as a whole, the patients who had acute brain injuries were not necessarily included in a lot of our PICS literature, but everything that we have learned over so many years about these physical, cognitive, mental health impairments in patients who came in with seemingly normal brains and then suffered from ARDS or septic shock. What we learn from this literature and particularly this study, it is very important to follow these patients longitudinally. A lot of these patients are suffering from impairments in various domains. And if we're not looking for it, we're not going to find it. And then specifically to pain and fatigue, while pain and fatigue are very important domains in the, and, and like Dr. Needham was highlighting, they don't fit nicely into the, the physical, cognitive, mental health, but there is such an important association between pain, fatigue, and each of these different domains. 
So when I when I looked at this this study, one of the first things that jumps out is the fact that these are patients with with normal brains. These are patients who who came in with uh, either having a high functional reserve and then had ARDS. And these are patients, more than 50% of them are not able to go back to their jobs because of these different kinds of impairments. So how does this inform us about patients who, who may have other uh, either coma, neurological comorbidities or brain injuries and ARDS, and then COVID-19, ARDS, and other uh, systemic injuries? So I think this is perhaps a very important uh, uh, point to pause and understand what's going to happen to the waves of survivors that we're seeing post-COVID-19. And this informs the evolving literature around COVID-19 survivorship and PICS and this overlap between long-haul COVID PICS or the post-acute sequelae of COVID and, uh, and PICS. So, uh, following these patients longitudinally. That's that's what I'm really taking from, from this study. It's super, super important to follow these patients longitudinally and to look for who's getting back to work and what is it going to need for us to study and what kind of resources are we going to need to connect these patients with so that they can get back to work. And perhaps not at the same same jobs uh, that they were uh, they were performing at, but but something something else that's going to going to help them get reintegrated back into society. I think those are fair points, and I worry uh, as a clinician on how good we are, <clears throat> unless deliberately looking at identifying these compromises, and then on a broader scale, what's the impact on society? But not to digress, and before I let Dr. Rally, continue. Um, Dr. Sue, would you help us understand the difference between table two and table three? So table two talks about the cross-sectional associations and table three is your sort of prospective association. So uh, break it down for us because, you know, some of us are just good old clinicians. So I get a little befuddled. Help me. Yes. So Table two, we are actually compare patients' six months functional ability to see whether they can return to work at six months or their 12 months functional ability related whether they can return to work at 12 months. So it's like a cross-sectional. So six months to six months, 12 months of outcome to 12 months impairment. But for table three, we are actually looking at whether patients' six months functional impairment associated with their return to work outcome at 12 months. So this is, yeah, so we are actually compared different time point. Does that answer your question? That does, and it's interesting, right? That it's not just one period, it's also period, two period difference, right? So, you know, we are not imagining this. I think that's a huge point, right? Awesome, all right. I'll stop talking, no, Nisha, please. all yours. No problem. So this is actually a question, kind of a segue to some more questions, but this question is to Dr. Sue and Dr. Needham. Were you surprised by what you found? Was it, and if you were, what surprised you about it at that time? So for me, the most surprising thing is that the pre-ideas workload is not associated with whether the patient can return to work or yes or no, because I read literature from other disease population and a lot of them find out that actually patients pre-illness workload associated with whether they can return to work. So this is the 
pile that quite surprising me because we actually find nothing here. Yeah. But, but really, uh, what this, this surprise did was sparked uh, a new idea that Dr. Han had for a, a subsequent paper. Why, why don't you, you mention okay. that, Dr. Han? Yeah, so there is idea about, uh, so there is idea about whether, so whether patient can return to work is depend on whether their job requirement fit their functional ability. So maybe it's not, so maybe it's not whether patient have a high workload job a failure chance to return to work. Maybe it's the match between their functional ability and their job truly affect whether they can return to work or not. So which inspire us to do a subsequent analysis and try to figure out that question. Yeah. Is the chicken and the egg, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. which, which one's causing mm -hmm. what, I think. So I'm assuming Dr. Ali is gonna shortly ask you about limitations, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So and why don't we get right into it then? Please, I mean, and you listed a few, um, and I did actually um, appreciate, I think, the detail that you wanted to, where you thought your study had its strength as limitations. And please feel free to give us all the insight. Yes. So the for the so I think our study have couple of strengths and limitation. So for the strengths is that this study is a multi-center multi-center study and with very low loss of follow up. And furthermore, we evaluate patient at six and 12 months about their functional ability, pain, fatigue, and the employment data. And then another thing is that most of the survivor report multiple functional impairment. So we analyze co-occurring impairment. So I think this is very nuanced because a lot of paper regarding return to work, they only focus on one aspect about the functional impairment. So for example, whether physical or cognitive impairment alone associated with return to work. So they didn't consider them as a co-occurring event. So I think that is our strength for the paper. And for the limitation is that because this is an observation study, so we cannot make any causal inference or infer directionality between the impairment, pain, fatigue, and the return to work. So for example, so for example, somebody of physical, a psychosocial impairment may be caused by not returning to work rather than being a cause of joblessness. Yeah, so I think future study may focus on to figure out who caused who, the causality. And then the second limitation for our study is we dichotomize the impairment and the workload to have a feasible, feasible analysis and the and in interpretation for the result. Which I thought was um, really well laid out in your paper about all the different limitations. You pointed out things that I had not thought of limitations at any point that I was like, well, maybe. Um, so, I mean, I know kind of what I've taken away from this study, but what do you think are kind of the take home points or something that our viewers can take away from your study? Because I think all of us find many parts of this interesting, so. Yeah, so I think there are many three takeaway. Oh, so there are 
four takeaway points. So the post-ARDS psychosocial impairment along or with physical impairment associated with patient uh, layer job loss. And also pain or fatigue symptom also associated with layer job loss. But, but the pre-ARDS workload is not associated with the return to work. But as, as we mentioned before, the important issue is is whether the mismatch between patients' pre-ARDS workload and the layer functional ability. So which tells us that the context matter. And then, so I think for the for future studies or future intervention to facilitate patient return to work, we could work on improving patients' functional ability and also include increasing layer scale to management layer symptom. And um, maybe we need to evaluate the need of maybe we need to more to evaluate the need to know about role for modifying job requirement to see whether that plays a role in the ICU survivor to help them return to work. I, I completely agree. <clears throat> Thank so, you so, so much for sharing So, that. Dr. Sue, this is interesting because one of her audience members is asking a very tricky question. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'll start with the content layers on here. I think that's the right thing to do. So the question is, what safety nets can we implement for our survivors? And Nea, before you go into it, I think this is tricky, right? Because, okay, we recognize that it's not physical impairment. We recognize that there's more, there's pain, there's fatigue, right? So this question can mean one of few things. So I'll give you three potential sub-questions to answer. One is, how do you even recognize, as a clinician, so imagine I'm a clinician, how do I go about recognizing this or looking at this in my post-ICU patient? Two, as you're building your PICS practice or clinic, depending on your resources, how important are other specialties or, or fields and what are they? And three is, so if we cannot in realistic world change the job for the patient, because that's easy to say, it's hard to do, then what's the answer here? So first and foremost, um, thanks to Kelly for bringing this up because we've been able to recognize that our patients, um, our ICU survivors, even pre-COVID-19, we knew our ICU survivors have a lot of these different impairments, which we now well recognize as a public health problem as post-intensive care syndrome. With the millions of ICU survivors with COVID-19, we know that we're going to see a much bigger wave of these patients. And while the pandemic has not come to an end, there are several uh, hospitals, health systems uh, in the United States, as well as in different parts of the world that have recognized the need for putting together some safety nets for survivors. And some of these have either been developed out of uh, existing critical care recovery clinics or post-ICU recovery clinics. Some of them have, have been uh, developed as multidisciplinary COVID-19 centers, knowing that there are multi-domain, multi-system effects of this disease process. Similarly, for ARDS patients, we know that ARDS may be an index 
disease problem and an index ICU admission, but the healthcare utilization for these patients for both their comorbidities as well as the ICU survivorship post-ARDS is going to require multidisciplinary care. So as a clinician, how do you recognize? I think the first step is awareness, being aware that our patients are going to need additional help. We as as intensivists or as practitioners in a critical care environment cannot limit our care to just the critical care environment. We have to be able to support our patients throughout the continuum of critical care. And just like it takes a village in the ICU, it takes that multidisciplinary team in the ICU, even post-ICU survivorship is going to need that multidisciplinary effort. It is going to take take a village because there are very complex needs right from right from the the impairments that we have spoken about, as well as healthcare management as a whole for all the different comorbidities. So how do we do this in a meaningful manner, which is not going to be very resource intensive? So some of the evolving literature around critical care recovery clinics or post-ICU recovery clinics, uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine had put together the Thrive Collaborative, uh, which uh, we at Mount Sinai were also a part of. And now there's the Cairo Collaborative that we're also a part of. Hopkins is also a part of um, Cairo. Several, several hospitals are. And we, we've been talking a lot about how difficult it has been to get the types of resources that are needed to provide the kinds of services that are ICU survivors and the PICS-F component that that dyad, the loved ones of that ICU survivor are also going to need. So how do we not create this as a as a good to have service, but a must to have service? The fact that there's all this this tremendous body of literature that particularly uh, Dr. Needham and his group has has contributed to tremendously and Dr. Sue's um, uh, specific uh, role in contributing and taking this literature forward in returning to work because returning to work is a very meaningful outcome measure, which we don't always include as an outcome measure for the therapies that we provide in, in an ICU setting. We're not necessarily looking at what's happening and what is preventing people from going back to work. So being aware as, as clinicians in an ICU setting, advocating for development of resources, whether these resources need to be put together as in-person clinics, whether these resources can leverage telehealth um, services. And we've seen a lot during COVID-19. I think telehealth really got the boost that it needed. Um, So uh, providing telehealth services, creating that safety net. If your hospital health system doesn't have that safety net, there are several hospital health systems geographically in geographically diverse areas that have these kinds of safety net or critical care recovery clinics or COVID-19 centers. So reaching out, being aware of what is available in your community. And if something is not available in your community, then reaching out to some of these other larger centers that have these services available and creating the awareness for the larger centers. Hey, there is a need. We need your help. So can we create a network a hub and spoke kind of model for referral for some of these um, these longitudinal needs. So I think uh, starting with the awareness, the advocacy, and and being able to ensure that our patients, uh, particularly ARDS survivors, septic shock survivors, are not falling through the cracks, and we are making them aware to start looking for uh, symptoms in PICS domains and making their loved ones aware that you're going to need to seek help for these kinds of uh, problems that may arise. 
and that we're here for you to, to link you up with resources that can help you get reintegrated back into society. And then your third question, which I think is even more difficult, the third question about adapting uh, workplace environments. What does the work from home environment mean for adapting workplace environments? And can we start thinking uh, more about non-traditional work roles for, for our ICU survivors? Like Dr. Sue pointed, Dr. Sue said something very, very important. What comes first? The joblessness that makes people feel uh, impaired or the impairments that lead to joblessness. So that loss of meaning, that loss of identity, the, the sense of not being able to give back to society, like all of those components, in some ways, having a job, having a, a vocation is, is a, a source of meaning. So how do we give that source of meaning back to people to mitigate some of the impairments that we see in PIC? So in addition to all the, all the things that we can do from a healthcare perspective, and having multidisciplinary teams just like we do in an ICU setting and not making that um, a good to have service. So I think, I hope I answered all, all three of those really complex questions, but thank you for that. You did. And Kelly, that was a great question. Dr. Sue, do you want to add anything to that? You don't, don't feel pressure because I think Neha did address it and it's a complex question, but would you like to add anything to that? Yes. So about the question three, so actually the American, uh, the, ADA, American with Disability Act, required the employer to provide suitable accommodation for the patient with impairment. So I think we need to let the patient know that they have the right to request that. And that the law, law required the employer to provide that accommodation to that. Yes, so I think that is the kind of resources we can provide to our survivor. That's a good point. So we need a better medical legal sort of collaborative system to sort of help our survivors. I think that's that's a good point. Uh, Dr. Needham, I'm going to pivot with you. And I think as we're trying to kind of come close to wrapping up here, Phil asks, um, was rehab involved with any of these participants? Sure. So I'm going to pause before I answer that and just remind us of two things. There are very close colleagues of ours whose job title includes the word occupation, right? There's occupational therapists. So so remember that when we're thinking about uh, ICU survivors getting back to work or getting back to other occupations other than work. Um, OTs, uh, this is in their name. This is in their skill set. But also remember, probably less well-known is occupational medicine. We as physicians have colleagues who do specialty training specifically in occupational medicine. And uh, after some of our initial work a long time ago, we had fascinating uh, discussions with occupational medicine physicians, uh, psychologists, all in a room together talking about um, this big uh, tidal wave of problems with return to work. This is going to be recognized if you had a stroke, for example, but it's very under-recognized if you had ARDS or or other kinds of critical illness. Um, So to pivot to to the actual question, so um, these um, patients were part of the ARDS network too and the randomized trials. So like the randomized trial called EDEN and Omega and ALTA 
and sales. And these studies were conducted between 2008 and 2014. So many of the hospitals that were involved here um, were still using deep sedation, still having bed rest, and most of the centers did not have um, intensive early rehabilitation. I'm not saying that all the centers uh, did not. There's 43 different hospitals that were involved. But when we asked the hospitals about routine use of early rehabilitation and, and having patients awake and moving, it wasn't common practice. Uh, many hospitals, of course, aspire to this, but don't have the resources or haven't done the culture change to make that happen. Um, so, so that also plays a role. It doesn't mean that hospitals didn't want to do that, but they may really not have access to, to uh, OTs and PTs and speech language pathologists and physiatrists and rehab medicine. They may not have nurses that, that have the time, the training and the engagement to mobilize. So, uh, so in this setting, um, most of the patients would not have been exposed to uh, early rehabilitation in the ICU setting. I hope that helps. That does. And we have one more question, Anisha. Sure. So Kelly is asking if we have studies uh, that you know of that have measured these similar outcomes in ARDS survivors that, you know, from more recent times where they were awake and walking around during their time in the ICU. So since the Paris or whatever culture change, do we have some data reflective of return to work practices from that time period? So th this is becoming more commonly measured as an outcome. And, and I think we, we fortunately had, had good foresight in thinking about we're going to measure things like pain and fatigue and return to work. And when we started thinking about measuring this, there were very few studies in critical care that had measured this. Uh, or measured it rigorously. It's easy to ask a one item question around return to work, uh, but our um, uh, survey instrument that we used was much, much longer and much more involved uh, and is, is publicly available that any other studies um, can use and other studies have used it since then. So I think it's becoming a more popular outcome but I, I'm not sure that it's getting the full attention that, that it could deserve just because it becomes a quite a complicated issue and, and takes a, a bit of time to, to unpack. So I think that there are going to be more studies that will be investigating this, hopefully in a, a detailed, rigorous way. But there's not a, a big wealth of, of large multi-center studies in a more modern critical care area that have, have monitored that. I, I would... Um, give a big shout out to people like uh, Joe McPeak, uh, who has done lots of lots of work on the topic of return to work and has that integrated into their outpatient follow-up model um, for ICU survivors. And, and I would, would uh, suggest people that do a PubMed or do a, a um, Google search for McPeak uh, and, and to find some of that literature and some of the really important work that's happening there and some quite encouraging findings that are, that are happening uh, out of that work. So I hope that helps uh, a little bit. Um, I, I also would be remiss without saying how important it is that, that we as, as critical care people advocate both in the ICU and as Neha said, after the ICU 
for engaging our rehab colleagues. We, we might have the strongest voice uh, within the hospital setting, probably along with our nurse leaders in saying this needs to be how we deliver care in the ICU uh, and after the ICU. We need the world to understand that there really is a massive unrecognized uh, disability in um, ICU survivors, uh, you know, physical, cognitive, mental health that does result in decreased return to work and having a big, profound impact on patients and their family members. Most of ARDS survivors are afflicted when they're in the prime of their careers and their, their, their um, income generating potential. So the impact really is quite profound. And that's really why, for example, for, for 10 years, at Johns Hopkins, we've had the Johns Hopkins Critical Care Rehabilitation Conference to bring OTs, PTs, speech language pathologists, psychologists, psychiatrists, rehab medicine doctors, critical care nurses and doctors all together in the same room to think about how to change our practice and to collaborate and break down those silos. So, so that really is incredibly important for us to move the field forward. Thanks. I agree. And I just can't underline the importance of this study because it's important for us as clinicians, as Dr. Neem, Dr. Soon, Dr. Dungan has just pointed out, for us to recognize this disability and to let patients know that some of what they're feeling is expected. This is not unexpected for them and that they have not failed. They have not, um, you know, it's not their fault that this is part and parcel of the actual critical care continuum, as Dr. Dungley has pointed out, and that there's more treatment to be done outside the ICU to be able to return to society and that potentially not exactly the way they had anticipated, but to some level as much as possible. And also like what Dungesh pointed out about the hub and spoke perspective that even though large centers have a lot of things that are available, smaller centers or private practices do not, but to be able to recognize that they do and to be able to refer a patient who feels that they are failing and, and not quote unquote in terrible terms of how they're feeling, um, that there is there are resources, there are ways for them to return. So I really want to thank Dr. Sue and Dr. Needham for the fantastic study to bringing this to the limelight and to getting it giving it the spotlight that it deserves. So thank you so much. And Dr. Dungich, thank you so much for joining us for this. And from Varen and I, guys, stay safe. It's obviously very crazy right now. So please stay safe and with your loved ones and take care of each other. So thank you for joining us, everyone. Thank you, Appreciate everybody. It. Thank you.